Hello and welcome to Tricycle Talks. I am James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. This podcast is being released in May of 2020, as many of you are no doubt sheltering at home through the pandemic. Many of us have had to adjust to living in isolation, but in a very serendipitous way, our guest this episode was uniquely prepared for this. Stephen Batchelor's new book, The Art of Solitude, was released in February of this year, just before most of us were forced into isolation. The Art of Solitude documents Stephen's explorations of time spent with oneself and how we can learn to live at ease with our fundamental aloneness. Stephen is co-founder of Bodhi College, a UK-based organization dedicated to contemplative learning and is the author of many books on what he has called Secular Buddhism, including After Buddhism, Rethinking the Dharma for a Secular Age. With our partners at the Garrison Institute and the New York Open Center in Manhattan, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Stephen Batchelor in front of a live audience on February 19th, a few weeks before social distancing became mandatory. The following is a recording of our conversation. Let's listen in. Welcome, everybody. It's great to see you all here. We're going to start with Stephen. He's going to speak a bit and read a bit, both of which he does very well. And after that, he and I will have a bit of a conversation, and then we'll go to questions with you. So with that, I bring you Stephen. Thank you very much, James, and thanks to all of you for coming out on a winter's night in New York to hear what I have to say. I'm going to just uh, say a few words about this book, The Art of Solitude, and I'll read maybe a couple of passages, and then we'll open it up, as James told you. This is a strange book for me. It's not a Buddhist book. I'm not trying to offer a Buddhist account of solitude. And I'm more interested in somehow giving voice to or allowing us to hear the voice of those who practice solitude, be they contemplatives, be they artists, be they writers, be they philosophers. How have they understood what it means not just to try to understand what solitude is, which I think is probably a misleading and uh, maybe not very productive way of going, but actually to illustrate, to embody, to model, to show what a solitary life means and how it's not just something for special people who go off into mountains, but it is something that is constitutive of our humanity. We are all existentially alone in a way that uh, is undeniable. There's a part of our experience, an inner part, our inwardness, our self-awareness, that is ours and ours alone. And we inhabit that space. What inspired, well, let's say many things inspired this book, but perhaps a key inspiration came from an early Buddhist text called the, the Atakavaga, the, the chapter of eights, for those of you who are familiar with Buddhist tradition, it's um, in the, the Sutta Nipata of the Pali Canon. And it has a claim to being one of the earliest instances of the Buddha's teaching, of our having a, a possibility of hearing a very early voice within the strata of texts that make up the Pali Canon. We know this on linguistic grounds, that the form of Pali is very old, and there's internal evidence in the suttas too, since this text is often quoted in other discourses, suggesting, again, a greater antiquity. There's a verse at the beginning of the second chapter which runs, The creature concealed inside its cell, a man sunk in dark passions, is a long, long way from solitude. Those lines really serve as the seed from which this book subsequently grew. 
I translated the four of the chapters within the chapter of eight, um, each of which has eight verses, making a total of 32 verses. Each of the specific chapters has eight verses of four lines, which also makes up 32. I'm not suggesting that I'm fascinated by numerology, but I do find that this uh, uh, organization in these poems has, has a certain aesthetic quality to it. So confession of a Buddhist aesthetic is actually maybe not so far from the mark, actually. <laughs> it's this aesthetic that actually organizes the structure of the book itself. The book is composed of four essays of eight sections each. And each of those essays is 8,000 words. So you have a total of 32,000 words and a total of 32 chapters. So the chapter of eights, or the four sections that I think are central to that chapter, uh, become the sort of aesthetic frame, the organizing frame for uh, the writing of the text itself. And each of the four sections, let's say, focuses on the experience of solitude from a different perspective. So these four sections were written as 8,000-word essays, and then they were sort of remixed by chance operations. But those chance operations, as well as the thematic sections, are very similar to how I organize uh, collages. Uh, this is a practice I've been doing for the last 25 years now of just picking up and finding discarded materials on the street or wherever, and then reorganizing this random discarded data into very uh, clearly thought out and designed mosaics, which are structured according to doing a very simple but very strict mathematical conditions. This book is written in the same way. And in that sense, it's an experiment. I have no idea how the book is therefore going to turn out. I don't know which chapter will follow which other chapter, which means that each chapter has to be somehow thought of as being able to stand alone. It can't depend entirely on the chapter that is preceded, and it won't necessarily logically follow into the chapter that comes next. And this also, for me, is saying something about solitude. Each part of the book, each of these 32 chapters, somehow has to stand on its own in solitude. It can't rely entirely on the narrative continuity that runs through the book. Uh, again, maybe a rather stupid thing to do, but that's what I decided. <laughs> again, as I use the word solitude, probably all of you have already some kind of association with it. Maybe you find it an attractive idea, maybe not. But um, let's look at what Montaigne has to say about solitude. What he has to say, I feel, has been very much an influence in how I'm also developing the idea. In ridding ourselves of the courthouse and marketplace, we do not rid ourselves of the principal worries of our life. Ambition, covetousness, indecisiveness, fear and desires hardly abandon us just because we change address. They pursue us into the monasteries and schools of philosophy themselves. Neither deserts, nor caves, nor hair shirts, nor penance can extricate us from them. That is why it's not enough to remove oneself from people, not enough to go somewhere else. We have to remove ourselves from the habits of the populace that are within us. We have to isolate our own self and return it to our possession. We carry our chains within us. We are not entirely free. We keep returning our gaze to the things we have left behind. We fantasize about them constantly. So although Montaigne knows nothing about meditation or mindfulness or any of the things that might be familiar to us when we think of solitude, he's framing the idea in a way that 
I find immediately comprehensible as a meditator. I mean, this is what I struggle with all the time. Not just when I'm sitting on a cushion, but how I'm somehow governing and managing my life from moment to moment in the course of my, of my days. So that's an example, really, of, of showing solitude. And I continue in the Montaigne sections to effectively tell the story of his life as a practitioner of solitude. James. Thank you, Stephen. I think you've answered all my questions. Oh, good. <laughs> so I'll have to think of some new ones. I'd like to start by saying when you started talking about the structure of the book, mm-hmm. it's such a disciplined structure, it certainly doesn't read as rigid as you made it sound initially. It's beautifully mm-hmm. written, so mm-hmm. congratulations. Mm-hmm. One of the questions I had, I was going to ask you about the relationship between your collage making and your writing, but instead I'll, I'll go somewhere else. You know, we share an admiration for Knausgaard, the writer. Oh, yes. And I could feel his influence in the book. There's a certain intimacy with experience. You get very close to your experience, especially when you describe uh, your ayahuasca experience, for instance, peyote and so mm-hmm. forth. And like Knausgaard, you get very detailed and intimate, um, which makes it a bit different from your other books. Can you say something about that? Well, um, Carlo V. Knausgaard is a Norwegian, contemporary Norwegian writer, novelist, and he's best known for his six-part work called My Struggle. I think it's the most extraordinary piece of literature. And it's true that I was reading Canals of Guard before and during the writing of this book, and I'm sure it has had an impact. And it's true, there is an element of this book that is quite confessional. I bring myself into the story quite a lot, as Canals of Guard does. But what impresses me with Knausgaard is that although he talks endlessly about the fine details of his everyday, ordinary experiences, in doing so, he tends to disappear. And I heard an interview with him once where he said that his approach to providing this highly granular picture of ordinary life is his way of letting go of his self, that it actually allows the world... Uh, to come forth in a way that all is obviously mediated by a man called Carlo V. Knausgaard, but you don't get any sense at all that he's being self-indulgent or egotistic or anything. It's, the, it's, the, it's this, the immersion in the world of this one specific individual person that reveals, I feel, a world that we all recognize, that we all know, and illuminates it in an entirely fresh way. So certainly there is influence there. Right. I mean, there's a specificity in this description of his experience that causes some people to accuse him of a kind of narcissism when, in fact, in that specificity, you can see the universal. It's very I, I feel that's the case. I yeah. don't find it nar- narcissistic whatsoever. No, I, I don't either. But that is the criticism, but I agree. You know, you, you draw Montaigne into this a lot. And one of the things I found really interesting about it is that he describes an experience that any meditator understands, and that's the the idea of solitude is very compelling, but when one actually engages with it, it's a real struggle at the same time. How much of your own experience is there? I mean, I would suppose all of it. Um, Yes, Montaigne uh, is a figure who in many ways serves as my role model in this book, both in terms of his, uh, his fascination with how you might actually lead a solitary life, practice a solitary life. Well, a very good quote at the very beginning. Retreat into yourself, he says, but first of all, make yourself ready to receive yourself there. If you do not know how to govern yourself, it would be madness to entrust yourself to yourself. (laughs) There are ways of failing in solitude as in society. So for me, his essay writing is part of his practice of solitude. And I was also inspired by his his somewhat chaotic writing style. I don't know if you've read the essays, but he'll have a title of the essay, and you'll read the whole essay, and there'll be barely any reference to the title. And he happily goes off on all sorts of meandering digressions and 
he says himself that he says, if you want less foolishness, you need a touch of madness. And he refers this to his writing style. And this also, I think, gave me a kind of permission, an authority, to, um, uh, to experiment with the actual form and style of writing. Uh, Montaigne argues that if we follow a strictly Pyrrhonist philosophy in which we don't hold on to anything as being ultimately true, that this requires another way of writing, another way of expressing oneself, not in terms of uncertainties and convictions, and this is true and this is false, but a style that allows an open-ended, ongoing curiosity and inquiry. You know, you say the book is not Buddhist, and I have to wonder, though, because reading it, it's impossible not to think about that. I understand you're using Montaigne, you're using Agnes Martin, you're using Vermeer, you're using Anthony Gormley, all of these Western influences. And as I said, as you said, you can feel Knausgaard in it as well. And yet it does in many ways reflect your four decades of Buddhist practice and teaching. So why do you say it's not Buddhist? I, I say it's not Buddhist in the sense that I'm not trying to persuade anybody of any particular Buddhist idea or doctrine or, or, or belief. I've spent a lot of time, as those of you who are familiar with my work, of trying to articulate some version of Buddhism, of the Dharma, that I feel speaks more directly to our condition and also is rooted in the earliest strata of Buddhist texts, or at least a certain thread of texts within the Buddhist tradition. And I try to argue for a particular interpretation of what the suttas mean and so on. I'm not interested in doing any of that here. Um, I'm not interested in telling people what solitude is from a kind of Buddhist perspective. I may give examples of people practicing Buddhist meditation, myself included, uh, and I'm as, as I already said, the whole book is structured around a set of early Buddhist poems. So clearly, the, the impression, the Buddhism is part and parcel of, of this book. But I think if what I'm doing, in a way, is more choosing to explore Montaigne and Vermeer and others, admittedly and unavoidably through my Buddhist filtered mind. I can't really do otherwise. But I'm not interested in then saying, well, Montaigne says this and there's a Buddhist text that says that. It doesn't matter. People might subsequently draw those kinds of conclusions themselves, but that doesn't interest me. I'm interested in forming a collage of voices that articulate what it means to be alone and how one might do that without any Buddhist agenda at all. Right. I mean, all of these different sources are pretty seamlessly integrated, so it's, it really reads quite beautifully. So can we talk about peyote and ayahuasca for a minute? Yes, if you want. Okay, <clears throat> I would like, I would, I want. Um, you say it's an aid to the cultivation of solitude. Can you explain that? Um, not very easily, actually, because in some ways... Um, you know, I chose to participate in these ceremonies, which are definitely not just me alone. In that sense, there's, you know, it's a communal activity, not a solitary activity. But what I found in all the ceremonies was that they're conducted in silence. There's no interaction between the individual participants in the group. And the group serves, as it were, like on a meditation retreat, to hold you in its embrace, as it were, and allow, I feel, a safe and free space in which to go very deeply into the core of one's experience. Um, I don't believe that simply by taking a drug, a pill or a cup of ayahuasca, that that will be the only agent that is contributing to the experience. It's one of many factors. The setting, uh, in other words, the he being held by a group in this instance, the songs that are sung by the shaman, the Ikaro, which I found hauntingly beautiful, and many other symbolic and, and sort of ritual elements uh, come together to create the experience that you have. But of course, crucially, 
It also depends on your own motivations, why you're doing this. It depends very much, I think, on who you happen to be, what your background and interest might be. And in my case, for example, I think it had a lot to do with my having trained for many years in meditation. I don't think it's the same experience if a, you know, a 17-year-old kid at a rave takes the same alkaloids as someone who's been meditating for 40 years, doing so in a highly controlled ceremonial context. So I don't attribute everything just to the, the alkaloids of the drugs interacting my, with my neurotransmitters. It's the whole thing that contributes to the experience that a particular person uh, will have. And in my case, I find that it brings me deeply into myself in a way that meditation can only rarely touch, to be honest. I think what happens is that something is neutralized, something is somehow suspended in one's neurochemistry, perhaps, that allows somehow uh, an, another way of beholding and feeling and sensing who you are, what your life has been, uh, in a way that's quite wordless, quite impossible, really, to articulate in, in, in a descriptive way, but one that, for myself, very much aligned with my contemplative practice, my Buddhist practice, uh, the philosophy of life I tried to lead, uh, as well as my aesthetic sensibility, both of art and also very much of the natural world. These ceremonies always taking place, in my case, in nature. So I feel that what it allows is um, a period of time, a few hours, in which you are, in a way, utterly and radically alone. And that, I find, is, can be both disclosive and revealing, um, but also and I found this in all of these ceremonies, something very affirming and... Uh, yeah, affirming was a word that came strongly to mind. Affirming and also, to some degree, cleansing. Ayahuasca is called la purga, the purge, and it uh, induces a lot of vomiting, which is not particularly pleasant. But I found that over time it was that purgative effect quite physically, it's a very physical experience, that seemed to be very much central to what it's about. Uh, it's, it's about a kind of cleansing, a purification of some kind. You know, I think most of us know you've been engaged with Buddhism, as you say, for four decades, in three different traditions. The Korean Song tradition, uh, you were a Geluk monk in the Tibetan tradition, You've been taken with the early teachings for years now. Uh, you translate. You've been very, very close to Buddhist practice and the Buddhist world for many, uh, many years. And I'd just like to read uh, uh, something. Don't worry. <laughs> I'd just like to read something that you wrote uh, as part of your experience with ayahuasca and the rigors, the physical rigors of ayahuasca. And there are two sentences that jumped out at me in that chapter that I think would be interesting uh, for you to explore with us. As Mother Ayahuasca takes me in her arms, I realized that last night I vomited up my attachment to Buddhism. Okay, that's one. <laughs> the other is, I am no longer a combatant in the Dharma Wars. Could you talk about those two statements? I mean, I've known you for a long time, so I have a feeling I understand it, but... Well, it ties in with this idea of purging. And I've participated in ayahuasca ceremonies twice. Once about five years ago, once three years ago, two years ago. can't remember now. In, on the, after the first ceremony, I realized um, viscerally and bodily that I was never going to touch alcohol again. I live in France. I like wine. I drink it on a daily basis. Uh, but I also think I have an addictive tendency to get too caught up in it, to be too dependent on it. And although I had no, no intention to give up alcohol as through taking ayahuasca, that's what happened. Uh, that was one of the most surprising experiences. So something was released in my body to the point that when I got back home after the ceremony and uh, I'd see a nice bottle of Chateau 
Margot or whatever it is, my mind would say, oh, yeah, I'd like some of that. But my body didn't follow through. There wasn't that sort of tug from my viscera to sort of say, yeah, 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 let's go for that. It had gone. It was very odd. And, you know, as a Buddhist, I always, always well felt slightly guilty about drinking wine because it's technically against the precepts and so on. Uh, but none of that had ever had much effect, nor all of the health warnings that governments are so keen on issuing. Um, strangely, in 48 hours, that whole habit was evicted. And I think in the second ceremony, another kind of attachment, maybe a deeper attachment, was also at least temporarily released, and that was my attachment to Buddhism, which is another kind of addiction. I think I had a slightly addictive relationship to Buddhism. And um, I can't explain how or why, but at the end of that ceremony, I felt that my relationship to Buddhism had undergone a similar change as my relationship to alcohol, actually. And I found that very freeing and liberating. But also, it made me equally clear about my commitment to the Dharma. In other words, I sometimes feel that Buddhism gets in the way of practicing the Dharma, actually. Buddhism, by Buddhism, I mean the institutions and the doctrines and the beliefs and uh, the, you know, all of the stuff that goes along with what it means to be a world religion, which Buddhism is. Whether or not I like that is beside the point. That's what Buddhism, for most people, is. And historically, that's the reality. So I think what this uh, ceremony enabled, and I don't think it's a, a bolt out of the blue, I think, if anything, it's simply highlighting or revealing a process that's already underway. I don't think it comes as a big surprise, given what else I've written, that I might be letting go of my attachment to Buddhism. But the key word is the attachment. That, I think, is what was purged, as it were. As it were. In other words, my relationship to my own practice. And whether or not I would call myself a Buddhist now would depend very much on circumstance. I don't feel comfortable self-identifying as a Buddhist, to be frank. And I also don't like having to you know, justify why I'm a Buddhist. But of course, I also have to acknowledge that irrespective of my feelings, the way I've lived my life, the work I've done, the different projects I promote, like Bodhi College and so on, of course I'm a Buddhist. I mean, that is, I think, simply the world in which I move and live. And it's silly, I think, to try to deny that. But in terms of my own inwardness, in terms of my own solitude, let's say, I feel that I don't anymore need the scaffolding of Buddhism to hold it up. And uh, where that will take me in my work, and uh, particularly in my writing, I don't know. You said to me before that you consider yourself a student of the Dharma, a teacher of the Dharma, but not a Buddhist. I mean, does that help keep you unattached, say, from Buddhism in the way that you're speaking? Yeah, maybe. I mean, these are... I know I, it's semantic. It's, it's somewhat so. semantic, this distinction, but I think it's a very significant distinction. And um, I feel that, that in many ways, the culture of modernity is such that none of the traditional forms of Buddhism, of any of the of the historical schools are going to be able to speak in a completely adequate way to the challenges we face in today's world. They'll all contribute a lot in their different uh, fashions, but I feel, and I've written about this elsewhere, that I think we're at a moment where we perhaps have to suspend our belief or disbelief in these traditional forms of Buddhism and try to go back to the beginning and start again. And that may be by going back to certain texts or certain teachings, certain practices, certain core practices, internalizing and, in a way, embodying those uh, fundamental ideas. And then, as it were, leading one's life and seeing what happens. You know, what that will be, I don't think you or I can guess. But it probably won't look much like Buddhism as is broadly understood in our world today. You know, that reminds me, many years ago I interviewed you, 
And I said, what would you suggest to a new practitioner or somebody new to Buddhism? What would you suggest they do? And at the time, you said, I would suggest they immerse themselves in a particular tradition and really know it, whether it be Tibetan or Theravada, Zen, and so forth. Since then, a lot has changed. There's Bodhi College. There's this group of people sort of congealing around the early teachings of the Pali Canon. What would your advice be today? It's a good question. I, I think in many ways, I, it will depend on the person, obviously. But I think in many ways, I, th I feel that is still a very good thing to do. I would encourage people, if they want to you know, really train in the Dharma, then you know, spend some time on a long retreat in Burma or Tibet or wherever. I, I think we must be very careful not to prematurely let go of these traditions that have given us everything that we currently know and understand and practice in the Dharma. And, of course, I may not agree or with, with certain beliefs or views they have, but in all traditions you have wonderful exemplars of humanity in the, in the teachers, in the practitioners, in the communities. And uh, I don't think we're at a point where we can sort of blithely say, well, we can forget about all that. I think that the Dharma is communicated not just by, by doctrines and beliefs and meditation practices, it's embodied also in, in practices, in communities, in, in ways of being with other people, with, with so much more than just doctrine and meditation. And I feel that is still something we can learn a great deal from. Martine and I have just come back from two weeks in India, and we went to visit the ancient rock-cut temples, and I find those places incredibly inspiring. Some of them are more than 2,000 years old, and they're the oldest examples we have of Buddhist architecture, excavated from mountainsides, um, and creating these spaces with no Buddhist icons at all in the earliest ones, just a stupa and this extraordinary geometrical harmonious balanced space that seems in many ways more evocative of uh, the Dharma than a profusion of deities and bodhisattvas and Buddhas and so on that you would find in Buddhist temples today. And I continue to go back to these early texts. I'm also very much inspired by Shantideva, 8th century Mahayana Buddhist writer, and I always will be, I think. And so to that degree, I'm kind of anchored in Buddhist history, whether I like it or not. And I have found so much from that tradition, and I'm sure there's far more to discover and to learn. So I'm not rejecting that at all. Uh, but I do think, over time, we're going to arrive at a way of talking about these things, a way of practicing that inevitably, perhaps, will reflect the kind of a culture of modernity in which we live. You know, you're probably the most well-known proponent of secular Buddhism as defined by your group uh, who focus on the early teachings. And I wondered when I went back to that old interview, um, it's been a few decades, It's a lot has changed. Is there enough there? In other words, if somebody arrives at Bodhi College, and uh, I've been there myself, it's a pretty incredible place, uh, at Sharpen College. Is there enough there so that somebody starts there, becomes grounded, and develops in, I guess, what we can call a budding tradition? Or would you still suggest um, they find more traditional uh, teachers or teachings? I mean, I, I'm just curious as to where you see this secular Buddhism movement now. Well, first of all, I think it's not quite correct to say that Bodhi College is a bastion of secular Buddhism. It is one thread within a richer fabric. Most of the courses um, we run are actually aimed at people who already have a foundation in Buddhist practice from one tradition or another. Because of our history, many of these come from the insight or Vipassana world. Um, and Bodhi College provides a kind of philosophical framework which can help people articulate more clearly to themselves and perhaps to others what they're doing. So we offer a teacher training. In fact, Timo over there is part of that. And we offer a secular Dharma program that Martine and I teach. 
Um, but in all of these programs, we actually, they already assume a certain familiarity and, and commitment to the practice of the Dharma. So it's not, uh, we're not, as it were, taking people who have known nothing about Buddhism and just starting from scratch, uh, but we're actually refining uh, something that's already established within them. Um, we're a very small operation, by the way. Sharpham House, where you visited us, is not... We don't own it. Right. We rent it out to do our courses. But um, we don't I, have any property or anything. Right. I mean, what I'm really saying is that there are people who read your books and take your courses online with us, for instance, mm-hmm. or they go to Sharpham College and take the secular Buddhism modules and so forth. And they really do orient themselves around those ideas. And I, you may be small, but you seem to have a pretty wide influence. Maybe. I don't know. I'm probably too close to it to see. Um, I do think it is true that a more secular kind of discourse is now more evident in certain aspects of the Buddhist world in the West. And I think a lot of that comes through people who have developed an interest in Buddhism through a mindfulness practice of one kind or another who, who have had these experiences of sitting, of paying attention and observing what's going on within themselves rather than just reacting to it, which is at the core of all these mindfulness interventions. And a certain percentage, I don't know how many, feel they want to take this further. What's next, they often ask their mindfulness teachers. And some of them end up at Bodhi College. Some of them end up on Vipassana retreats and so on. And so I think in that broader sense, I feel there is an ongoing secularization. In other words, people are not looking to the Dharma for another religion, another belief system. They're looking for a practice, a way of life. And at Bodhi College, we honor that intention. And uh, we have no interest in, in, in making more Buddhists. We're not going to give people the refuges and things like that. But they are part, I think, of some emerging culture that is going on. I mean, I often get emails from people saying, I've read your books, what do I do next? And uh, <laughs> you say, I live, in, uh, I live in Montana. Where is the nearest secular Buddhist group? <laughs> and that's something that I haven't really given much attention to. Right. I mean, you'll probably not like hearing this, but we do sometimes uh, get people saying, uh, you know, that they are bachelorite Buddhists, <laughs> and you probably hate that, but that seems to be developing a bit. Uh, does it? Oh, yeah, dear. it does. Well, <laughs> sorry. I have one last question, yes. and it's unrelated. Um, you know, I've been with you in India. Uh, we sponsor pilgrimages to India and elsewhere in the Buddhist world, and... Just thinking about it, you've spent a lot of time traveling in Buddhist Asia, and it's a pilgrimage. Mm. Can you just say something now about what pilgrimage has been for you as a part of your practice? Because you've done a lot mm-hmm. of it. Yeah, there's even a chapter in here on pilgrimage, right. as right. one of the rock-cut temples is described in here. Um, I think perhaps because I'm a rather neurotic intellectual who lives most of the time in my head, that I very much value going to physical sites which are connected to this tradition of which I feel so much a part. And there's something almost magical, I feel, about being, for example, in the places we know where the Buddha was. But in those places, there's very little left as a rule, just brick foundations of monasteries that were built 500 years after the Buddha. But when you go to some of these early rock-cut temples, I really feel the presence of those past generations who would have lived and worked simply in these places, would have read similar texts, would have done similar practices. And pilgrimage, I think, is very much about honoring not so much the places, but the men and the women who inhabited those places, who created those places, whose aesthetic informed the design of those places. So what we do on our pilgrimages is we go to a particular site and then we symbolically, in a way, try to restore them to their original function, if only for a couple of hours. We sit in meditation, we might read a sutta, a text, have a discussion, have a talk, and don't look at it just as an historical artifact, but actually as 
a sacred space. None of these places are active Buddhist uh, sites any longer. They are owned by the Archaeological Survey of India. They're utterly secular in that way. And technically, you're not allowed to do religious practice in them. So we're doing something slightly transgressive as well. But I feel that somehow is both a way of honoring the history of these places and the people who were there in the past who are now totally forgotten, um, and somehow reconnecting to that stratum within the early Buddhist tradition. Okay, so we're going to take questions from the audience. So if you have questions, please come up to the mic and speak directly into the mic so we get it all. Hi, Hi. thank you for your talk. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the experience of solitude, and in particular, I guess my own personal experience has been a little bit like what you described of there could be an awakening or a mm. awareness, but there's also a found very terrifying aspects mm. of it. I was wondering if you could speak about your own experience. Oh, thank you. Um, let me just actually read you out a, a bit from the very beginning of the book, uh, which I think might answer your question. Solitude is a fluid concept, ranging from the depths of loneliness to the saint's mystic rapture. And then I quote Victor Hugo, the French novelist, who said, the entirety of hell is contained in one word, solitude. <laughs> but he later, late in a subsequent uh, text, he said, solitude is good for great minds, but bad for small ones. It troubles brains that it does not illuminate. But then you get Wordsworth. It's a lovely passage which you'll recognize probably. For oft when on my couch I lie, in vacant or in pensive mood, they flash upon that inward eye which is the bliss of solitude. And then my heart with pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils. So you can see just in those quotes that solitude means a lot to different people. And I'm also aware that in, in most languages, French, German, for example, and we recently discovered perhaps Korean as well, solitude has got an unavoidable negative feel to it. La solitude in French really means loneliness. Einsamkeit in German, loneliness. And neither of those languages have, as English does, two distinct words, solitude and loneliness. It's just not there. So how do you translate this book into German, which we're actually working on at the moment? It's not easy. There's no single word in German that corresponds to how the word solitude is used in English. Ditto in French. So it becomes a problem. But the way that I'm approaching solitude in this book, and I'll say what I say, Avoiding its extremes of hell and bliss, I will explore the middle ground of solitude, which I consider a site of autonomy, wonder, contemplation, imagination, inspiration, and care. So rather than thinking of solitude either as mystical rapture or horrible loneliness, to think of solitude as in a sense, filling the space between those two extremes. And it's that middle space, that middle ground, that middle way, perhaps, in which solitude can become a site, S-I-T-E, a site of autonomy, uh, of self-reliance, and contemplation, reflection. And that, I think, is the space that we refine and cultivate through any kind of contemplative practice. And I think also psychotherapy can be a way of learning how to be with yourself in a way that you're not constantly anxious and worried and overwhelmed by negative thoughts. The whole therapeutic tradition is basically helping us to live alone, to be able to live at ease and leisure with ourselves. That's Montaigne's definition again. So it's in that sense that I don't think of solitude as definable. I can't sort of put it in a neat definition and say that's what it is. But rather, I seek in this book to show how it has been experienced and practiced and lived by different practitioners. 
And hopefully, that might help you find your way in the midst of your own inner life. Thanks for a wonderful talk. This perhaps relates to the existential loneliness or solitude of each of us. Mm -hmm. But I've been very struck in reading accounts of of uh, people who've come back from the verge of death and relating that to what is written in what's normally called the Tibetan Book of the Dead, how in many accounts in the West, people are encountering a presence that seems outside of themselves, which is comforting and full of love and acceptance, and there's a sense of transcendence. And in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, I've, I've always been struck by this sense of solitude, mm-hmm. how you're recognizing the display of your own mind, and there doesn't seem to be a presence of, say, helpful Buddhas or, or beings that might be there to welcome you into a greater understanding. So I'm wondering if you could comment on how this relates to solitude. It might take us beyond the conceptual abilities of language, but... Maybe you have something to say about that. Um, probably not that much, actually. It, it is quite interesting to look at how solitude is understood in, in, in theistic as opposed to non-theistic traditions. And I think if you are a Christian hermit, let's say, then your experience of solitude will be profoundly informed by your faith. And your faith will include a faith in God, however you may understand that. And for many, it will be, solitude will be the space in which you can somehow let go of all of your entanglements in the world, all of your attachments and fears and your racing thoughts and your busyness and so on, in order to receive God. In fact, I quote uh, a letter from uh, Catherine of Siena, who says, Make two homes for thyself, my daughter, one actual home, in thy cell, that thou not go running about into many places, and another spiritual home, which thou art to carry with thee always, the cell of true self-knowledge, where thou shalt find within thyself knowledge of the goodness of God. Now, as a Westerner, I understand that. I don't believe in God in some theological sense, but I know exactly what's being said here. In other words, God becomes code, in a way, for experience as revealed once you let go of your attachments and fears and obsessions and so forth and so on. Whereas in Buddhism, which is a non-theistic tradition, you don't have that language. You have a very different kind of frame for explaining those things, where solitude, I think, in many ways becomes almost synonymous with nirvana, In other words, this verse I read out at the very beginning, the creature concealed inside its cell, a man sunk in dark passions, is a long, long way from solitude. In other words, just to go in, hide away in a mountain somewhere, and to, uh, but at the same time to be completely caught up in your own inner darkness and confusion is not solitude. So what is solitude? Solitude, presumably is a way of being alone with yourself in which you're not overwhelmed by your greed and your fear and your dislikes and your likes. In other words, it's the absence of greed, absence of dislike, absence of confusion, which is the definition of nirvana. Nirvana is not some Buddhist heaven. Nirvana is the absence of what impedes you from being who you could be. And as you dwell in that kind of emptiness, another Buddhist term, then you are, as it were, learning how to be most radically alone. In fact, emptiness and nirvana are really spoke of as absences. And in Tibetan, I don't know if you can do this in Sanskrit, the word solitude, enba, is also a synonym for empty. In other words, to be solitary is to be empty of something, empty of busyness and the world, but also empty of uh, your attachments and fears. So real solitude in Buddhism is a mind that is not caught up in its desires, its attachments, its fears, its anxieties. And this is a language that is really quite different from that of theism, but in terms of an actual spiritual practice, 
that a monk or a nun or anyone in either tradition would pursue. I suspect the discipline is much the same. But the way you read it, the way it's meaningful for you, are quite different. Thank you. So I'm, I'm very intrigued by the, the, what you said, that there's not a, a distinct word in, in French or in German, loneliness versus solitude. And I'm curious, uh, is that indicative of any sort of cultural difference? And more broadly, are there distinct cultural differences of, of, of how that is viewed, of whether loneliness and solitude are synonymous? This reminds me of discussions um, one has also about Buddhist terms, you know. I'm not at all convinced that just because a culture doesn't have a particular word for something that's equivalent to a particular word in English, that therefore they don't have that experience. I think that's uh, naive, actually. It's true that you may not have a word-for-word correlation, which is something, as a Buddhist translator, I'm endlessly aware of. But that doesn't mean that you can't communicate and express the range of feelings and understandings. Because, you know, French people can talk perfectly well about being lonely. That's no problem. And they can also articulate what it means to be alone on a retreat in which you feel fine. And Montaigne, too. Montaigne uses the word la solitude in a largely positive way, which is uncharacteristic of modern-day French. But he, too, in some passages, is using solitude to mean loneliness. So I don't think we should get bogged down in the specifics of terminology in different cultures as reflective of different cultural experiences or even existential experiences, but to try to figure out how these people talk about these common human experiences in the grammar and the terminology of their particular language. The book has just been translated into Korean, And um, Martine and I are both a bit curious to see how they've done this. I'm working with a German translator. And we've come up with a translation that's perfectly, I think it's a pretty good translation of the book. And we've resolved the problem of solitude versus loneliness in a number of different ways, largely within the context of different chapters and so on, and found a way of expressing it, maybe not in one word, but communicating the idea through a different use of language. I think in German they're going to translate the title as The Art of Being Alone with Oneself. Something like that. Die Kunst mit sein selbst allein zu sein, or something like that. So, no, I don't think it really is telling us that French people don't understand solitude. They can only be lonely. No. (laughs) Thank you. I find myself very curious about your experience with peyote and ayahuasca. Uh Having experienced ayahuasca, I'm curious if there was a qualitative difference between the two. Between the two medicines. Um, I think the experiences that I underwent under those different medicines is really probably saying more about me than them. Mm to be honest. And also, I think one has... I have to take into account that I saw this as a continuation. I first took the peyote in Mexico, and that had a very different quality and feel to the subsequent explorations with ayahuasca. But I can't assume the ayahuasca experiences would have been the same had I not already undergone the ceremony with the peyote. So uh, I, 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 I just can't really answer that question. Fair enough. Thank you. Thank you. Staying in that part of the book, if you will, uh-huh. I was really struck by your comment about not wanting to self-identify as a Buddhist. Uh-huh. Do you think it's possible to convey the primary teachings without ever using the word Buddha or Buddhism? <laughs> um, yeah, I think one can. And um, that, perhaps to me, is the Holy Grail. Many years ago, uh, someone in this room asked me to write an introduction to Buddhism without using any Buddhist terminology. And that was a a wonderful exercise in self-discipline because when I'm writing about this stuff, it's so easy to lapse into Buddhist jargon and to give authority to what you're saying by citing some, by, by quoting some Pali or Tibetan term. And the book that resulted was called Buddhism Without Beliefs. So that was my first attempt to do that. It did. In other words, it didn't go far enough. And uh, um, quite honestly, I feel that 
not until we can articulate the Dharma in our own idioms can we say that the Dharma has found its way into our own society. We have to learn how to stop speaking Buddhist, if that were a language, Buddhish, uh, and speak English. And if we can't do that, if we still persist in holding on to certain jargon terms, then clearly something has not yet been completely integrated into our own experience, into our own culture. But I don't think this is something you can accelerate just by having more access to information or being a smart person. I think these kind of processes occur over, over long periods of time, generations. At least historically, that's what we can see. Indian Buddhism went to China, but it took about three or four hundred years before we could start speaking about Chinese Buddhism. In other words, a, a tradition that's found its own voice and has become somehow autonomous. Or Tibetan Buddhism. The Tibetans like to think that everything they say is exactly what they were saying in India. But that's not true. There's plenty of examples you can use to disprove that. What is far more of an achievement, I feel, is that the Dharma managed to find its way to speak to the needs of Tibetan people, of Chinese people, and that conversation, that dialectic, generated through several generations, after several generations, a new iteration of the Dharma itself, which we now call Tibetan Buddhism or Chinese Buddhism. And that's just the way it's always happened. And I feel that what we're doing in our time is really essentially not different from that. Because remember, remember, the Tibetans don't call themselves Buddhists either. They call themselves Chuba, Dharma people. Uh, so so it's, not, it's not such a radical idea, really. Buddhism is a word that was invented by Western scholars in about the early 19th century. So, <laughs> Yeah, so was Theravada. I mean, those words well, were invented. Yes, a lot, lot, a lot of these terms. So it's a very useful, generic sort of uh, pointer, the word Buddhism. We kind of can work with it. But I struggled with it for years. Could I ask a quick question? Yes. Would it be ideal then to translate, say, dharma variously according to what it meant, or karma, since they have many meanings, law or just synonymous with the teachings and so forth? Or would you keep words like that? Well, again, uh, I've thought about this for a long time and I've had hours of conversations around precisely how do you render the word dharma? And I don't think you can. I think we're going to have to keep that. It's tricky because often if in, in a Buddhist text, the word dharma is used in many different ways, as you know. It doesn't always mean the same thing. And in some instances, you can perhaps translate it simply as, as a thing. You know, the 10,000 dharmas, the 10,000 things. Uh, so you don't always have to use the word dharma. But when the word is being used as the dharma of the Buddha, you could say teaching, um, that would more or less work, and in some contexts that's clearly what it means. But I feel there's something about the word dharma that is probably not translatable. It's a nice word. I think we should keep it. It's a nice word. You like it. Good. Okay. But, um, yeah, maybe that's something I still haven't managed to let go of. Also. Or maybe it just works. Well, I don't think it really does, because it's a jargon term. It's understood by people in the know, but um, it's not part of everyday English speech. Like karma, maybe. Karma, I would actually. Karma, I think, is a word we should stop using and just say action, yeah. which is what it means. Um, karma carries too much sort of, well, sort of new age baggage, basically. Right, but it's more than action. I mean, when Buddhists well, no, it's use... not. I mean, it's not. The word karma simply means action. Right, but it also refers to um, action as a consequence of previous actions, no? I mean, there's that all. built no, into it. It might, in popular modern English usage, it might have that sense, but that's clearly not the way it was used in, uh, uh, in the traditional... Uh, tra no, no, in the, if a Tibetan says, that's, that's your action, they're saying. That's your action that caused this. It's your deeds that cause this. But isn't there, in Buddhism traditionally, an ethical component 
with the idea of karma? Yeah, well, that, the, that the, the ethics idea. of the action itself will, will, will shape consequential actions. Yes, it will, but then there's a different term, and that's, that's karma vipaka, lendre mm -hmm. uh, in Tibetan, uh, call, you know, karma and result. It's yeah. a compound term that, it's true, in English we, we blur that compoundedness and just use the word karma, but I think it's sloppy. And, and it's inaccurate. Mm -hmm. um, I think you can, I think a lot, there's a lot of sort of mystification can creep in when you use the word karma like that. But you yourself still use dharma and karma. Not huh? karma. Well, I don't, you use I, dharma, though. Dharma, yes, yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. I can't Do you find hope a way to get past it. that? or <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Any other questions? I don't really know how to frame this, Stephen, but... This book is very different. I haven't read the book, but I read the article, and, and you quoted some passages. And what I feel is uh, I've read your books, and you're always translating, describing, explaining something else. And in this one, solitude is a word, and solitude is like a concept, but it's all, for me. It's all very personal. Yeah. I see it as very right. personal. And my question is, how does it feel because it's very different from telling me about Bodhidharma or someone else. You're just telling me what your thoughts are. Yeah, uh, you hit the nail on the head. That is exactly the difference. That what I'm doing in this book is I'm showing you something. I'm not telling you something. And it's in that sense also that I don't think it's a Buddhist book. I'm not telling you about Buddhism. I'm not trying to provide you with some knowledge about Buddhism. I'm trying to show you what this experience we loosely call solitude is like, what it means and what it means for me, the writer, and how my solitude and practice thereof has informed this book. Do you like that? Do I like it? Writing from there, from that place? Yeah, I do, actually. I, I think it's a much more real place. And I think I use Buddhism, again, as a kind of a way to... something to hide behind. It's true. <laughs> I think it's a very intimate book. Again, I think it gets very close to experience. I mean, words can only go so far, but these go pretty far to describe experience. And I would venture to say that, in fact, the author, as Knausgaard does, disappears, I think, in many ways. It's so intimate, it's so self-revelatory in a certain way, but in another way, it's not. Again, in your descriptions, you fairly disappear. I think that you did that. I, I have a, a, another question. You talk about found objects, mm. and there's a random or chance quality to them in your collages. Mm. But how was it random in the book? Because it's very different. But did you have some way of kind of randomizing or leaving some things to chance? Well, a number of the things in the book did, in fact, occur by chance. For example, there's a chapter on a man called Robert Cull. And as I was writing this book on solitude, uh, one day a package arrived in the mail and from a stranger, someone I had never heard of, didn't know. And I opened this package and it was a book called Solitude uh, by Robert Cull. And Robert Cull sent me this book because he'd read After Buddhism and uh, wanted to just send this to me as a sign of his gratitude. He didn't know I was writing a book on solitude at all. Um, and yet this is a fellow who had spent a year off the tip of Patagonia all by himself in a shack, and he's published his journals on it. So I took that. That was a found object. And so I incorporated it into the book. And other things too. That's the most obvious example of that. But I do find that uh, simply being open to chance and to what I happen to hear on the radio or what I run across or what I read in a book, it happened a great deal that life seemed to keep providing me with more material, quite par hasard, uh, by chance, by accident. Maybe that wasn't an accident, I don't know, but that's how it appeared. So I was very open to that kind of playful relationship with what was unfolding in my life in the course of my writing that book. But the randomness as a contrivance was through the way in which I mixed up all the chapters. That was something, I mean, it's a little bit too complicated to explain how I did it. But um, I, I devised a system whereby I could randomize to a certain extent. 
But at the same time, the structure of the book preserved the chronological sequence of the different sections that were chronological. So the story of Montaigne follows a chronology. The story of the ayahuasca and so on follows a chronological story. But the way in which they're interwoven is determined by chance operations. Okay, well, thank you to the Garrison Institute, and thank you so much, Stephen. Thank, thank you very much. You've been listening to Tricycle Talks, live at the New York Open Center with Stephen Batchelor, author of The Art of Solitude. This event was produced in partnership with our friends at the Garrison Institute. If you are interested in listening to more episodes of Tricycle Talks, visit us at tricycle.org slash podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Write us at feedback at tricycle.org. Tricycle Talks is produced by Paul Ruest at Argo Studios in New York City. I am James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle the Buddhist Review. Thank you for listening and wishing you and your loved ones good health. <laughs>